Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. The United States aircraft carrier Hornet, part of a task force steaming into Japanese waters, 16 B-25s, twin-motored army bombers, lashed to the Hornet's flight deck. Colonel Doolittle assembles his 80 volunteers before the flight. Not until this moment is their objective revealed. The heart of the island empire. A fitting touch. Japanese medals awarded United States officers for humanitarian aid to the Japanese people are returned attached to 500-pound bombs. Now in heavy seas, some 800 miles off Japan, enemy patrol boats are sighted and sunk. Survivors are picked up and put aboard a cruiser. Fearing they have radioed Tokyo a warning, Doolittle decided to take off 10 hours ahead of schedule. Plans are changed on an hour's notice. Motors begin to warm up. Never before have big loaded bombers been launched in such numbers from a carrier at sea. For months they've trained secretly. Now for the test. Doolittle's plane is first down the runway. The commander leading the flight. the carrier plows through heavy seas, one bomber after another soars from the flight deck, pointed for Japan. The sea grows rougher, the weather worse, but not one plane fails to get into the air. Taking the gale in its teeth, each bomber sets its course for carefully prearranged military objectives in Japan, a course that will put them over Tokyo at high noon in broad daylight. The Yokosuka naval base ablaze. Arms plants, rail yards, and oil refineries smashed by the raiders in Tokyo, Yokohama, Kobe, and Osaka. Then journeys end for the great adventure. Fuel gone, 15 of the planes are wrecked as their crews are forced to bail out over China and Japanese-occupied territory. The Japanese government flatly admits that of eight uniformed flyers captured, some have been executed. This in flagrant violation of all international law. 64 of the 80 men who took off were rescued, and most of them have returned to duty. In Chongqing, Madam Chiang Kai-shek honored Doolittle and his gallant men for a raid that did much to shake the complacency of the Japanese warlords. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we're back here for another week. we got the skeleton crew, just me and Mr. Henry Sledge. Join us as always, Henry, friend, how are you doing tonight, sir? Doing fantastic, man. Glad to be here. Aren't we all? Woo! It's uh, been a long couple of weeks. Um, haven't really gotten to it too much on this podcast, but I do like to keep everybody up to date with what's going on in the world. Um, and what's going on in the world is I have recently closed down at computers after 18 years, and today was my first day since I worked in radio. But when I worked in radio, I was still working in that computer, so I was still dipping. But today is the first time in 18 years I have been working a job and not as an owner. And I got to tell you, it's nice. It's nice to actually just be able to drive to one location, clock in, hang out for nine hours, and clock out and go home. Opposed to you just, feel like it takes a lot of stress off of you. Not only that, but I mean, with gas prices being 419, 420 a gallon, I'm driving a V8 truck. Oh, well. Driving 60 to 70 miles a day, putting wear and tear on my starter. Yep. Um, Here's a weird question. What kind of aggregate do you guys use in your roads up there? 
You ever thought about it much? Yeah, because I mean, a lot of our Thompson Tractor customers are, you know, like Vulcan Materials mm-hmm. and and uh, Lafarge, and you know, so um, rock quarries are all around us. See, that's the way it was when I grew up in Ohio and Kentucky. It's all limestone, so they would just mm-hmm. get rock quarry limestone and put it in their their concrete and their cement and their blacktop, and that was the aggregate. Well, I live in the I live right off the coast of Florida, off of Sanibel. Sanibel is the seashell capital of the world. Now, all of our soils sand and seashells. And so when you have the broken seashell capital of the world and you need aggregate, what do you think we right. use? Seashells. And it's really noticeable when you walk around the park and look at the parking lots, like walking through the grocery store, walking to Walmart, you look down. And where this comes into play is a lot of people probably don't think about this unless you stepped on a few of them. Seashells are rather sharp. Extremely, yeah. And so when you're pouring them in your concrete and and use them as aggregate, we noticed this when we moved out here from California, my dad and I. We're like, why is our tires wearing down so quickly? You get to, oh, well, you got all this sharp-ass seashells used as aggregate in our concrete. And so, you know, and driving 70 miles a day, I had to put new tires on my truck already. And when I got my truck, it only had 50,000 miles on it. I'm up to 89 already. Um, I put 129,000 on my 2015 Tundra in like, I don't know, a little over a year maybe. Mm -hmm. And then my other one, I ranked up. But anyhow, long story short, so I started my new jobs. Same career path. I'm still doing IT work. I'm just doing managed services. It's all remote. And uh, so... You know, it's been kind of hard to keep up to date with all the show prep and stuff we do here when you're closing down businesses, emailing customers, you know, and all that. So finally, now that I'm just about done, end of April is the end all be all, and I'll be completely done with offloading clients and doing my new gig. That Now that I have this 9 to 5 job, I'm not getting, having people call me at 5 in the morning, text me at 7 in the morning, call me at 11 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock now I actually have some free time to focus on our passions, such as reading and doing all things World War II. Nice. And so I'm hoping not only this podcast, but the other podcast on the network will see the fruits of the labor that I will now be able to do with some more free time and less stress in my life. And so that's that, yeah. one of the things we're looking forward to. That that sounds great. I mean, it's just got to be so much stress off of you. I mean... It's just that double-edged sword. I mean, people I know who own their own businesses, I mean, yeah, they've got the potential to make so much more money, but everything is on them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so. and I know there's probably some business owners who listen to this podcast who, especially the last two years, the pandemic, I think the numbers were 40 to 60% of small businesses closed down in the last two years because Wouldn't of the doubt pandemic. It. Yeah. Yeah. I would and absolutely so, believe it. So for those of you who are business owners and you may be listening to this podcast on your way to the office or on your way home, I get the stress you're going under and uh, hopefully things pull through for you. But, you know, I'll put this out there too. I know we're not quite World War II, but sometimes it, it, you know, it pays to share with our audience. I'll be honest with you, Henry. One of the things I was concerned with, and maybe if you're a small business owner, you're concerned with this too. I'm 43 years old and I'm thinking, you always hear about ageism, right? Right. And I'm thinking, I'm 43. If I'm going to make a career move, now's the time to do it, if not a little too late. And I even, so I even taught my brother, who he works 
as a uh, project manager for a uh, construction company out in Vegas. And he, you know, he's like, well, as somebody who hires people, you know, I'm going to give you a heads up. A lot of people are afraid to hire people who own their own business for so many years because, you know, they're stuck in their ways and they, they kind of have an attitude and you're not exactly a spring chicken. And so that was a bit of a concern, but we have something on our side. And that is called work ethic. See, in the last two years, all these 20 and 30-year-olds have been quitting their jobs and then brag about it on the internet. Right. And right. believe it or not, when I put my resume up on one, just one resume website, first week it was quiet, but all of a sudden I had like, I had to cancel four interviews after I accepted this job. So if you're out there and you're good at what you're doing and you're 43 and you're, you're feel like you're stuck in a rut, whether you own your own business or you just working a job you're not happy about, just fill all your resume and put it online. Don't mean you got to quit your job, but you might be surprised right now. There, us old cats kind of have a premium on our head because uh, we like to work. <laughs> so yeah, I've I've been hearing about the great resignation. Mm -hmm. I think over you know, four I, million people they said last year quit their jobs. Now, what are these people? How are they supporting themselves? Um, some of it's gig economy. Um, some of them are driving for eBay, Uber and Uber Eats. But I'll be honest with you. Um, during the height of the pandemic, my payroll got affected so well that I, so much that I, I, for a short period started driving for Uber and it was profitable in the middle of the pandemic because no one wanted to drive. And right. so they were, they were doing bonuses. I, I remember one night I went out on a Friday, did the bar run. I did like five trips, made like 120 bucks. I was like, hell yeah, but, that ain't bad for two hours worth of work. But see, now you've got gas prices eating into that. Well, but at the, uh, I'm driving my Volkswagen Jetta, which I can drive from Cape Coral, Florida to Valdesta, Georgia on one tank of gas. But anyhow, mm -hmm. b before the gas prices went up, I was driving and making a little bit of money. And then the, the bonuses and as the pandemic wind down, more and more people started driving. All the bonuses and enticements went away where I did one night, like after four drives, I made 30 bucks. I said, to hell with it. I quit driving. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I, I still get the emails. Oh, you can... It, they're so they're so hungry for drivers right now. Like, oh, if you drive between one a.m. and three a.m., basically the bar runs, you can make up to thirty eight dollars an hour. She's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm yeah. good. I, I don't need it now. But but to answer your question, some of them were doing the gig economy for a while. At the height of the pandemic, people were making, uh, depending on what state you lived in, with the bonuses and the pandemic money, some cats were making more money on um, unemployment than they were making in their full time jobs. So. It kind That's of ties them to stay home. So, but anyhow, so if you're uh, stuck in a rut or whatever, and you're concerned that your age may be a limiting factor, right now I'd say there's a premium on old cats like us. <laughs> speaking, <laughs> speaking of which, um, I forgot I signed up for Rugged Maniac, and I won't get into it. It's just an obstacle course race. It's an easy one. I signed up for it last January. I forgot all about it because I've been so busy. Uh -huh. And I got my parking pass in the mail, and I said, oh, crap, I got an event at the fairground. It's all paid for. All I got to just pay the gas, get up there. Long story short, I'm like a mile and a half into it, and there's another guy. He looks like three or four years older than me, hair's grayer than mine. He looks at me and goes, us old guys are crushing it. I'm like, you son of a bitch. How are you going to call me the old guy? I was like, yep, I'm technically old now. When another guy's three years older than me looks at me, refers to me as the old guy. I'm like, yep, I'm oh, officially man. old. But uh, you it, know, it, it weighs in on you pretty quick. I mean, I, you know, my son races mountain bikes. Mm -hmm. And so his practice ride, I'm not one of the team coaches, but his practice rides uh, on the weeks and on the weekdays that they have them. And then on off weeks from races, a lot of times I will go on those rides 
and man, I'm bringing up tail end, Charlie, you know, because I'm the oldest guy out there. I'm the oldest dad out there by quite a few years. But, you know, my son is a really fast rider. He's usually in the upper quartile sure. of, of his age range. Uh, but it's humbling for me. To, and I'm not even trying to keep up with anybody because I'm not trying to, you know, to prove anything. I'm just out there to be out there. But I will but, tell you this. The same thing I would tell my daughter when I try to get her to run with me and she's out there. I can't do it. She literally said, I can't do this while running a mile. And I'd say, mm-hmm. Sarah, look around. How many other 14 year olds do you see out here doing this? Right. None. So I say mm-hmm. the same thing to you. You may be pulling up rear end Charlie, but how many other dudes out there you see your age out there doing it? The answer is none. They're all at home sitting yeah. on their couch. So take the pride with right there with it. That's, that's true. I mean, that's the thing. I'm, I'm, and the more oh. you do it, the, the, the faster you'll get. It's just, you know, that's the great thing about, you know, I run a lot and I, I'm getting older. I know that I won't run any faster. Matter of fact, I'll run slower. But if you notice long distance runners are all old cats. Most long I've distance. I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. Most long sure. distance runners are 30 or, or older. So we may, may not get faster, but we build up that endurance and it's all in mental. And one thing us mm-hmm. old folks have is mental stability. So. Well, yeah, compared to what's out there now, but and a lot of it too is just staying active and, mm-hmm. and you know, um, working out with weights and doing something aerobic, be it running or, or mountain biking, just staying active. So important. And that is so true. I have a friend of mine, he's a customer of mine and we'd go to the gun range together. I never realized how old he was. And, and he's, I think he's in his, now I say old, he was because I started hanging out with him when I was in my thirties. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, he served in the army. Then uh, no, he went to the navy. Then he served as EOD in the army, and then retired. And then went back working as a civilian in the defense world, designing weapons. And he has some sweet ass, like five inch thick aluminum panels on the side of his house with holes blown into them because they're testing the ballistics of different things. But I sell that because. He loves gardening. He wins all these awards for local indigenous plants. But because he's out working out, not working, you know, he'll go to the gym. But like you're saying, it's so important to move. He just had a complete knee surgery, like complete replacement surgery. He had surgery and was done with physical therapy, like completely cleared of physical therapy in three weeks because he was constantly walking, crouching, jogging down the neighborhood street and just going to the gym. He wasn't doing anything crazy. He wasn't out running miles, Mm -hmm. but because he stayed active, his doctor couldn't believe how quickly he got through physical therapy. Like he was back and walking like three to four weeks from a complete knee. I would believe it. It makes all the difference in the world, man. Yeah. Yep. 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 So as we opened up the show, now to get to world war two, um, today's the anniversary of the Doolittle raids. I guess it would behoove us if I actually looked. Oh, here we go. Um, there's my daughter in this room. April 18th, 1942. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you're familiar with the Doolittle Raids. And if you're not familiar with the Doolittle Raids, we'll give you a, the the um, Cliff Notes version, which, interestingly enough, I'm wearing my frontline apparel and it actually has the map of the Doolittle Raids on the back. Oh, nice. And I so, like that. So it actually has the map of the Doolittle Raids. So if you guys seen the other bad movie, Pearl Harbor, uh, they had the Doolittle Raids included in that. And we all know about how they had to clear the weights on the B-25 Mitchells. Is that the B-25B or the B-25A? You're the air guy. I think they were... That is a good question. Uh, they weren't A's. Pretty sure they weren't A's. I, 
Yeah, I think there are the bees. book I just read did not. I don't know that it gave the suffix. Um, I'll tell you what, though. I'm looking in the index right now. Oh, here they are. The um, B25s. Um, I, I saw something. He or, does not say if they're A's, B's, or what variant. I think they may have been B's. But anyhow, they had to clear a bunch of weight from them because they were going to launch them from aircraft carriers due to the, the amount of um, air bases we lost. You know, a lot of people think Pearl Harbor, they just attacked Pearl Harbor. No, Jap Japan did a whole sweep and took over, you know, B Bataan and a, a whole bunch of different areas. And yeah, we lost Clark Field in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. We lost a lot of air bases. And so strictly as a morale boost and hopefully somewhat bit of beneficial, we came up with the plan to, well, actually Doolittle came up with the plan to let's launch some B-25 Mitchells. We'll basically have to clear all the armor and all the guns and basically all the weight except for enough gas to get to China. And let's drop some bombs on mainland Japan. Which up at this point and ever, Japan had not had any sort of foreign entity attack them on Japan proper. On the That's right. And so they took, um, they took off. And as you heard from the opening thing, they actually had to take off 10 hours and 124 miles early because they got picked up by a um, a um, picket boat. A picket boat found them, and they attacked it, and they sank it. But it took long enough to attack it. They were more than sure that they got an SOS out, and their surprise had been compromised. Now, we're already in a position, a mission, that a lot of people didn't know would work. I mean, here we are flying heavy planes that were way too big to be launched off an aircraft carrier. And due to the amount of planes on the Hornet, that's less takeoff space because <laughs> you got a whole bunch. You know, the guy in the back of the stick, he had more room to, to get speed, but Doolittle up front. and Yeah, the guy up front. And Doolittle was going to be the first one off. That yeah. was, he was that kind of guy. And so they, they took off. They went. They bombed their targets. And because of the lack of gas and even more, now that they had to take off 114 miles early, 10 hours early, they had even less gas. The whole plan was hang a left and fly to China. Land in China and we'll try to rescue you. It's a risky mission. It's the one we had, the one they signed up for, and one that all the uh, volunteers, once they found out what the mission was, none of them quit. Sidebar. Being here in Florida, some of my living history buddies actually had the privilege. They would attend the Doolittle Raiders reunion every single year up until, what, three years ago when they only, they did the last one. Right. Oh, that had to be amazing. Yeah. Uh, there's a cat who hangs out with us down here named Don Dickey. He takes a lot of the photos. He has some great photos. I think this time last year I had um, another living historian on here, Ted Johnson, who attended those. I think he, we did a little... Um, Raiders episode. So anyhow, we dropped the bombs, and as depicted in Pearl Harbor with the fake characters, um, I think all of them but three landed in China. That three actually were killed bailing out. Yes. Um, one, one crew landed in Russia. That's the crew and I want to talk about, because that's the one okay. that doesn't seem all to right. get much play, but go ahead. No, well, I don't want to, if you're no, no. to talk about them, I don't want to steal. Well, go ahead and talk uh, but, about the other, but I, I, I have some information on the one in Russia, because I just kind of found out about this night doing a little extra research. But go ahead and continue on with the... Well, and, and I, I actually, while I was on vacation, read Target Tokyo by James M. Scott. Um, my, the best book I've read on it. And 
2013, like you, you just said, 2013 was the last year they did the reunion. And the um, sad thing was, is they had a, a mug, maybe even a chalice. I don't know what word you'd want to use, but uh, let's just say a beer mug. Maybe it's even a wine glass. One for each and every uh, member of the crew. Mm-hmm. And as they started the reunion all the way up until 2013 when it ended, they would all drink from their their coinciding mug or wine glass. And then when it got to the last one, you know, they're all up front except for the one, the one survivor. Mm-hmm. And they didn't stop it in 2013 because the last survivor passed away. They stopped it because he got to the point where he just couldn't make that trip anymore. Yeah. But um, since you read the book, give a little more details on the overall mission before I get to the Russia crew. Well, I know it was the USS Nashville that that sank the picket boat and mm-hmm. took a huge number of five-inch rounds to do that. But the problem was, I mean, the picket boat was a small vessel, and it's just you know, riding up and down in these huge swells because the weather was pretty blustery, you know, as it always would be. Um, and the, the Nashville's crew kind of came under some, some scrutiny for that, but they insisted that um, not only because of the, the weather conditions, but also I think the rounds they were using were armor piercing and not high explosive. Um, so, you know, soft skin vessels like that, I mean, those rounds were just going straight through them. Hey, sure, and if you don't hit a battery or a gas tank, you're not going to get an explosion every time if you're not using high yeah, explosive Yeah, exactly. Rounds. But, um, yeah, so, you know, do a little uh, – they, they, Halsey puts the word out to the guys that, hey, we've been probably safe to assume we've been spotted. Uh, we probably need to go ahead and launch because the carrier's got to get out of here and get back to Pearl because we were running low on carriers at that point. Mm-hmm as things were on a knife edge for the United States at that point in World War II. Um, and every one of the guys stepped forward and said, we're ready to go. And so they did. Now, I want to pause there because this little off subject, but sometimes mm-hmm. when we're having these conversations, you'll say something that just sparks a question. And I've never really came across this in my research, but prior to Pearl Harbor, which was in December of 41, this is April 18th. 42 a Mm -hmm. few short years later um obviously we didn't land in guadalcanal until august 7th which is a few months away Mm -hmm. i wonder if at any point prior or right after pearl harbor we're like well crap we're in it now we just got attacked i wonder if there was a moment a auditing a discussion with our accountants and our um our our logistics people did we ever extend the stuff that we gave out in the lend lease are we hurting now to have our own equipment <laughs> we gave so many tanks and so much equipment to you know our allies during the lend lease trying to stay out of this war and all of a sudden now we get attacked unplanned unprovoked mm-hmm. I, I wonder if at one a moment like um crap we need to do an inventory because now we're that's involved a good, that's a good question i mean I'm, I'm i'm thinking probably not so much because you know obviously large naval assets like you know battleships or aircraft carriers weren't part of that i'm but, not talking i know but i'm talking but about airplanes Jeeps, and tanks, tanks and guns yeah, armor i mean yeah weaponry. ammunition i mean i'm sure we only gave so much but i'm sure that so much is based on 
well, one, how much we had available. Two, we know, we know how the citizens of the United States felt about war after World War One, and how we kind of are the isolationist and the politicians. Being politicians, they want to make people happy. Our our military was at an all time low, which is why the Marine Corps were the ones opted to serve first because they were qu- considered quote unquote more battle ready than the army was. Well, and you know that what you say there. Let's go back a little bit sure. right after Pearl Harbor because it it it's a little bit frustrating. You know, just having read Richard Frank's book Tower of Skulls, which Asia Pacific War from it goes from thirty seven to forty two that first volume, and he, you know he's going to do a trilogy on that. When it, it's hard to think about what we lost at Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. and to to read that Winston Churchill was excited. He was ecstatic. For a lot of the reasons that you just touched on, because he knew we would crank up our war, you know, our, our ability to produce material, our manufacturing capacity, mm-hmm. our legendary ability to do that. And he was excited about that because he knew that he wasn't in it alone anymore. Yeah. You said Churchill, though, right? Yeah. For a brief second, I had a brain fart. I thought you, I, it came through my head as Roosevelt. I'm like, why would Roosevelt be? No, no, no. Churchill. Churchill. Yeah, Winston no. Churchill. Uh, well, let's fast forward to 2022. You don't think Zelensky would be slightly happy if something wouldn't, wouldn't be a little slightly happening, something horrible happened to us to get us in, involved in this nonsense between them and Russia? After, what, two months? Mm-hmm. I mean, Churchill was in it for what? 39 to 42. So they were, they were mm-hmm. well, they're in a hell of a lot longer than uh, three months. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, they'd lost Singapore, the Prince of Wales, the repulse. Um, what was that? That actually, let's see, Malaya, Singapore, that was around Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So we technically might've been, you know, it's of course, as I'm sitting here talking about the dates don't immediately come to my mind. But yeah, it's like, it's like, huh. At any point that we say, well, crap, maybe we should have only gave them X amount instead of the, <laughs> maybe should only give them 0.5% of our stuff instead of 1%. It's just a thought. And yeah. Especially when once again, okay, we're in it. Let's look at our stuff. Okay. Well, the army's not, numbers aren't quite there. The the Marines are kind of there, but well, we're still using 1901 Springfields from World War One, but that's okay. The Japanese are still using bolt action. Um, I guess you're it, boys. <laughs> you're you're more put together with your your grandfather's Kelly helmets and your uh, bolt action rifles and and uh, your your newfangled uh, uniforms that were made for jungle. But yeah, you know, diving into that book though and going through it, it's it's phenomenal level of detail, Don. And it really the thing that struck me was it, it was not just this haphazard. Hey, we think we can do it. We're gonna we're gonna take off. We're gonna plan to get to to Tokyo because Tokyo has never been bombed. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna go. You know, they were explicit. Uh, Doolittle had issued explicit orders: do not bomb the Imperial Palace. Leave mm-hmm. that alone. Which Steer nice clear of that. Us. Bomb military targets only, and then divert to China. And there really was a great deal of effort made on selecting military targets. They weren't just oh, let's just fly into Tokyo and, and drop Fire the bomb. eggs. And, yeah, you know they they went to great pains to actually have military targets, and and you know some cases they were successful to hit those, and then in other cases they weren't. And of course there were 
some unfortunate incidents of of some civilians being killed, collateral mm-hmm. damage, if you will. Um, and that that played, from what I read here, that played pretty heavily into why the three guys who were executed by the Japanese were executed. Yeah. You know, we should do a segment called Who Orders Books During This Show? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm literally on Amazon right now. Tower of Skulls. But um, as I was saying earlier, when I was, you know, I knew about the land in China and some getting shot down. And, and I'm sure at some point I heard about the Russian thing. Yeah. But the reason it stuck out to me, I was watching this YouTube video. Th- this great executed thing actually goes, uh, he, he has, I just stumbled across it, so I don't know the channel. But he has, he's been doing his series of videos leading up to the event. And the reason the Russian thing stuck out to me, he said, because this plane landed in Russia to which the crew was promptly interred. I was like, wait a minute. Russia was our allies. Why would they be interning our guys? So that, that like that raised my interest. And so I did a quick little Google. I Googled the, the do little Raiders who landed in Russia, who was headed up by uh, Mr. Robert G. Emmons. Say he's not a Mr. He has a rank. You're absolutely correct. Um, Emmons entered in the United States Army Air Corps on February 23rd, 1937 at the Vancouver Barracks in Washington, graduated from flying training school at the rate of pilot in February 38. Fast forward. As a first lieutenant, Emmons joined the Tokyo mission just, be- just before the mission. He was a co-pilot on one of the B... Uh, here we go. No, still doesn't have the sub. See, on that video, it actually said B-25A or B-25B. I can't remember. But anyhow, mm. he was a co-pilot on one of the b one of the 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers under the command of Colonel James H. Doolittle. That was, uh, that's where he left the carrier USS Hornet to carry off the Tokyo plan. Now, as we said, um, after the 16 crews, um, he took off, his crew was burning fuel a lot quicker than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently at the time, the Soviet Union was not at war with Japan. And so, even though Doolittle had specifically told Raiders not to fly into Russia, as we said before, uh, his B-25 was consuming fuel at a much higher rate than planned on the mission, possibly due to the incorrect engine uh, carburetor setting. That sucks. Um, As a result, after after attacking his target successfully in Japan, the plane turned north and touched down in a large field 40 miles from um, a city in Soviet Union, the Soviet, um, the Soviets, Soviet Union, as I said before, which was not at war. Japan held the crewmen captive for 13 months. Yeah. Colonel, Moved around a few times too. Colonel Evans later wrote a book about his experience as a captive called guest of the Kremlin. After landing in uh, Vladivostok, Emmons wrote that the Soviets held its five crewmen at several locations throughout the Soviet Union, limited to the same diet as the besieged Soviet people, mostly black, blackened bread and cabbage. Um, the five crew members suffered malnutrition, dysentery, and other medical problems. However, rather than wait to the end of the war under the deplorable conditions, the crew resolved to escape. While held at Ashgabad near the Persian border, a thousand miles from um, Vladivostok, where they had found sympathy from a Soviet officer, 
the Soviet officer introduced them to an Afghan smuggler who supplied the officers with better food other than the, and other black market items. Crewman paid the smuggler $250, um, won in a poker game the night before the mission by the pilot Edward J. York. Now, how this guy wins a poker game, loads up, bombs Japan, gets arrested by the Soviets, and not searched, where he still has $250 on his person. Really? That's called some good luck. Um, do, 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 do. So, poker night before the mission by the pilot Edward J. York to lead them to the British embassy in Iran. The five, with the help of the British diplomats and Mossad, uh, made their way to India and got the got a flight to the United States. The B-25 aircraft was kept by the Soviets and was scrapped in the 1950s. That has to... Look, I understand you're not at war with Japan, but you're supposed to be our allies. You're really going to intern our guys for 13 months? Could you imagine being one of these crewmen? You're treated so horribly by the Russians. You're interred. You had to pay money to a uh, smuggler to smuggle you to the embassy in Iran. And then a short period of time later, Russia announces, okay, we're at war with Japan too. And now we're full-fledged friends. <laughs> it's like, come yeah. on. I, you, you would have to be so bitter. Their, their level of boredom, like right before they decided to, to go over the mountains into Iran with the smuggler, their level of boredom just reached exasperating levels because in target tokyo uh james scott talks about how um after and so it was 13 months total that they were interned but like right before that at one point the the ranking member of the crew goes to soviet official and just says look guys we are we're healthy we're able to work put us to work doing something hmm. yeah, we're just sitting here with nothing to do day in and day out. And it was, it was just killing them. Um, and so they end up, I, then they, they had, they moved. It was another one of their moves before the actual escape from over into Iran, but they actually end up going to work in a munitions factory. I think. Well, that, that would occupy your time, but you know, and that's a good, you know, that's something a lot of people don't think about and you hear it a lot. And that's, morale i mean here you are you're being deterred interned by someone who's supposed to be your ally mm -hmm. you're eating horrible food until you find a soviet commander who feels for you and gives you a little bit better food you're healthy as you could possibly be in that situation but what makes you feel better is physical labor and being productive not to go back to where we're at the beginning of this podcast but Kind of goes a long way to show where we are nowadays, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Went from a group yeah, of really 19 and 20 year olds who flew a suicide mission, ran out of gas, landed in Russia, was arrested, fed horrible food, got dysentery, malnutrition, and all they wanted to do with their free time was work. Fast forward a few 80, 90 years, and you got 4 million people quitting their jobs because they feel underappreciated. <laughs> Yeah, it's a um, different time for sure. I know. I, I often jokingly tell people, you know, World War II, a lot of our men were 16, 18-year-old boys fighting for our freedoms, and now you can't get a 16-year-old to mow your grass without giving you a bad comment or huffing and puffing. 
Oh man, no joke. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So I don't know. It's just like I said. I was watching watching that video earlier, and as soon as I heard deter and turn, I was like, "Wait a minute! I thought Russia no." They, they, well, like, and I just read in one of the pages here. Uh, Doolittle told him, "Don't I, I don't think go there." Yeah, he said it really wouldn't be a good idea. I think I think the way he put it in here, and I have to look the page up. He he didn't expressly tell him not to, but he said it really wouldn't be a good. It would idea. behoove you but, not to land there. Yeah, because they might mistake if you know there, there's a good chance they they mistake you and shoot you down, not knowing you're Americans. And not that China was a good landing place anyhow, because you got to keep in mind at that time Japan occupied a lot of land on China's. Oh, Eastern yeah, Front. Yeah. So you Manchuria. had the island of Japan, you had a body of water, and then <clears> they <throat> occupied all. So you not only did you have to fly over Japan proper, you had to fly over the body of water and then fly past the occupied areas that Japan was holding down and then crash into the China and hope that Japanese troops that are pushing their way forward into more, you know, area that wouldn't belong to them. Mm-hmm. You, know, you were hoping that the right people would find you. And at the right that's people. when, that's when this book Target Tokyo really gets hard to read. When when it starts going into the reprisals against the Chinese, yeah, um, and the number and it's it's all been written about before. You know, this isn't new information, uh, and we certainly admire the bravery and the skill of the Doolittle Raiders, and always will. But I think there was some bitterness on the part of some Chinese. For putting them in that position? Yeah. And, and it had even been talked about beforehand. I mean, it's not like nobody knew Japan had been at war in China, you know, since 1937 uh, and border conflicts even before that. But it's not like nobody knew what was going to happen if, if the Japanese suspected that aid and comfort had been given to, you know, downed American flyers. Well, not only that, but here you are, you're, you're a Chinese frontline troop or Chinese guerrilla, what, whatever your role may be, no. you're, you're having a little skirmishes here and there. And now all of a sudden you're in possession of a hot potato. So mm-hmm. you're what, what went from little combats and skirmishes maybe for the last few months mm-hmm. in an, in an area that really hasn't had much movement. Now you have the entire might of the Japanese empire in that general area looking for you. Mm-hmm. And I could definitely see how you might be a little bitter and uh, resentful for being put in that position that you really didn't have a choice in. You were just kind of doing your patrols and minding your own, and here comes a, a big metal bird out of the sky <laughs> petering down and not exactly doing it awfully quiet. It's not like they didn't. And to be sure, they looked at him as heroes, like, hey, you bombed Japan. Yeah, you know? but still, <laughs> the the individual troop who uh, found themselves running and being shot at probably wasn't. <laughs> I could definitely see how they might be a little resentful of being put in that position. Yeah, for sure. So here's a here's a paragraph here. Let me read this. Sure. Chiang Kai-shek cabled the horrors to Washington. Quote: After they had been caught unawares by the falling of American bombs on Tokyo, Japanese troops attacked the coastal areas of China, where many of the American flyers had landed. These Japanese troops slaughtered every man, woman, and child in those areas. End quote. He wrote. Quote, let me repeat, these Japanese troops slaughtered every man, woman, and child in those areas, end quote. And that, that's Chiang Kai-shek cabling to Washington. It's, 
I'm trying to Google something. Okay. Uh, statue. Oh, uh, what the hell they call those? It's, it's amazing how even today. Um. Some of these governments have a weird sense of justice and outcry. Mm-hmm. We know that the Japanese people, well, not people, but the Japanese military, um, the ones who were forced to fight, whatever, they were fanatical. Um, they were known for doing some pretty uh, hor- horrible things. And we could say, well, that's, that's the time of war. That was the time things have changed. And I and I, I always am dumbfounded. And there's a story that came out. I'm trying to find the uh, date on it. This came out a few years ago. Um, it was actually looks like it was updated in 2020. Korean comfort women statue in Berlin angers Japan. Didn't know they had a monument for that. The the Korean citizens group is aiming at raising awareness of women forced to work in the military brothels with a with a memorial. But Japan has said the controversial statue is out of context and only serves to damage relations. And the memorial is nothing but an empty chair and then a woman in what appears to be like a geisha-type garb sitting there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I can understand how Japan may not want this part of their history brought up. I get that. But roughly around the same time, Japan... Thought it would be a great idea to take the photos, slides, and medical documentation they have of the experiments they did on American prisoners while alive and putting that shit in a national museum. (laughs) Are you talking about Unit 731? Yeah. That's horrific. On one hand, they're upset that Korean comfort women's statue is raised in Berlin. That's horrible, but here's some in-depth details and slides of the horrible atrocities we committed on live POWs during the war. But hey, that's science. It's like, which one is it? Which one's more offensive? Um, Some might argue, as bad as the comfort women thing is, um, probably displaying the scientific articles you did on our prisoners might be a little more offensive to some people. Just saying. Absolutely. So it's like, which one is it, Japan? You can't have it both ways. (sighs) Yeah, Unit 731 gets into some some pretty horrific stuff. Yeah. You want to lighten the mood a little bit? Yeah. Well, hey, here's another. So move on to April 18th, 1943. Okay. U.S. was reading Japanese mail, got intel that Admiral Yamamoto, Isoroku Yamamoto, was going to head out of a ball in a flight of G4M Betty bombers to... Uh, Visit the troops down in the Solomons. You know, a little morale Loganville. Yeah, yeah. Beat the drum, beat the war drum a little bit. Get everybody excited about, <clears throat> despite the the fact that they lost Guadalcanal, that they still had a chance. At, and apparently, you know, the Japanese equivalent to a Bob Hope wasn't available. So <laughs> we'll send the we'll send the next best thing. Exactly. So. Uh, <laughs> So they end up sending off a flight of, it was supposed to be 18 P-38s out of Guadalcanal. Two had mechanical problems and had to be uh, called back. So it ended up being 16. And they intercept uh, Yamamoto's flight of G4M Bettys and shoot him down on April 18th, 1943. Fantastic. <clears throat> I'm sure that had a lot to do with disarray amongst the 
Empire of Japan's military, at least an aspect of it in, in upcoming conflicts. Well, and, you know, they, they really, at first, I think they covered it up back home. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, they lied about everything. You know, oh, I mean, and we talked about it before, everything from the fact that the Japanese Navy didn't get along with the Japanese Army and they didn't communicate amongst each other, that all of a sudden that the Army was responsible for protecting this little airstrip that they built on Guadalcanal that no one knew about that the Navy took it upon themselves to build. To, exactly. To, you know, how do you win a war when, could you imagine you're, you're, you're trying to formulate plans. You're trying to organize your Navy, your army to formulate battle plans. And the reports of casualties that you're getting back of your own side are so, I was going to say inflated, but deflated, not even a proper word. So miscalculated or intentionally misinformed so that, Skewed. so that the higher ups don't lose their pride and all that. How can you win a war without accurate numbers of how many guys you have? Because people are afraid of what the outcome is going to be towards them. Good point. And it's, and, and, and I often think about this, how much different would the outcome of World War II be if our two biggest enemies, because I can't think of a better word right now, if the heads of those two groups weren't such evil, misguided narcissists that their underlings were so terrified of them, because the Germans did the same thing. They didn't, you know... Even if they gave them proper counts, Hitler was so out of left field, he just thought they were full of shit. And, but yep. could, imagine one could make the argument the rule would never happen if they actually had rational thinking people at, at the head of their militaries, which is probably true. But let's say in bizarre world, they had rational thinking people doing irrational shit, right? Imagine how much different the outcome would be if the higher ups in J Japan and in Germany actually got accurate accounting of what happened and their military communicated with each other how different things would have been for us. I think we benefited greatly from the narcissism, the fear, and the miscalculations, and the poor, intentionally inaccurate reportings to the higher-ups. Well, look at, look at what, I mean, as far as that goes, look at after the July 1944 plot to try to kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. You know, then you had, and it really played out in the in the Eastern Front. You know, if you you pick up a book on the Eastern Front, what was going on in Russia? They were terrified of reporting just how bad things actually were to him, but because they knew after the the July 1944 assassination plot, he had an ear cocked for any semblance of disloyalty. Yeah. You know, what was it? This entire Sixth Army was lost at Stalingrad. So they now, and of course, he knew about this. But I love this self-deception. They lose the Sixth Army at Stalingrad, and they just create a new Sixth Army on paper. Yeah, paper army. Good way to win. <laughs> so just uh, here's our new Sixth Army. So we just <laughs> conveniently a, do away with that. A Wilhelm, go back in my kids' room, get some modeling clay. I need a new icon for the map. Here's our new army. <laughs> <laughs> that's about, yeah, that's about the way it, what it amounted oh. to. But it, it had to be sobering for the Japanese to know, because they think about 
they had a flight of, I think, nine zeros flying cover for those Betty bombers. And I can't remember how many, because it's been a long time since I've read a book on the, on the Yamamoto shoot down, but uh, I'm only aware of a couple of them haven't been written, but they had to know that, yeah, Google it, get, get your double screens going for us there. Um, that had to be pretty sobering for them to know that they're doing everything they can to prosecute this war effectively. And we're reading their mail or there's a leak, there's a breach somewhere and we take out their number one strategist. Eight, we sent out eight P we sent out 18 P 38s. I'm trying to see how many enemy planes there were. Although the 339th flyer squadron officially carried a mission with 10 to 18 pilots were downed. Blah, blah, blah. Usually they have the statistics of like, um, here we go. It's in there somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, I think there were nine zeros flying cover. So we had 18 P-38G fighter aircraft. Mm -hmm. They had two G4, uh, G4M1 bombers, six A6M2 fighter aircraft. Okay, so six Zeeks and two two baddies. Yeah. So okay, casualties and losses, which I always find this is a cool little st stat on Wikipedia. We lost one P thirty eight and one pilot killed. Um, both their bombers were destroyed. One fighter damaged, killed, um, and twenty killed, including Admiral, Admiral Yamamoto. So, it yeah. was 20 Japanese killed. Yeah, it says 20 Japanese killed, including Admiral Yamamoto. And Don, you know, it's amazing to think that that the wreckage of that G4M is still out in the jungle of, uh, jungles of Bougainville. Was Here, it southern Bougainville? Here's an interesting thing, too. Now, listen to this. Casualties and losses. Two bombers destroyed on the Japanese side. One fighter damaged... 20 killed included Admiral Yamamoto. So that means out of that 20, how many people do you think were on those two bombers? Four or five? I would have thought it. On, a, on just a single Japanese bomber. Two? Three? I mean, a Betty typically carried a crew of five, I thought. Okay, so that's 10 people. Observer, pilot, well, I don't want to. Well, let's just round up the five just for, for safety. So if two bombers were destroyed... That means that's 10 people. The other 10 people who died, including Yamamoto, were all on that one aircraft. Mm -hmm. That's how many people were on that one aircraft. Yeah, Roughly he probably 10. had staff people and, you know, yeah. minions. Yep, yep. Uh, let's see. Just, as you said, the decrypted text revealed that on April 18th, Yamamoto would fly from Rabul to um, Bali Ali Airfield. Balali. Balali Airfield on the islands near okay. Bougainville. Off the tip of Bougainville. Okay. In, in Solomon Islands, he and his staff would fly in two medium bombers, the Mitsubishi G4M Bettys, escorted by six Navy fighters, so it was six A6M Zero fighters, to depart Rabble at 6 a.m. and arrive at 8 a.m. Tokyo time. And the thing about the Betty bomber was, of course, none of the Japanese airplanes had cell ceiling fuel tanks but the if i remember on the betty bomber the fuel tank was part of the wing like it was structurally there there was no fuel cell they within just, the wing it they was just, just part of the they wing. put some flex seal on the inside of that wing and made it exactly so you know f4f wildcat pilots and and every other american pilot that ever 
put rounds on one, I mean, they would just flame up ridiculously fast. Yeah, and and from what I understand, the reason the Zeros used to outmaneuver us is because the Zeros themselves had no armor plating. Exactly. Where our, the pilots our, would even take the radios out of them. Yeah. Because to save weight, number one, but number two, because the damn things didn't work most of the time. Yeah. So I think a lot of their pilots would communicate by hand signals quite a bit. Um, yeah, they learned. I mean, our guys, and we're kind of, you know, getting beyond the scope of the Yamamoto April 18th mission, but our guys learned pretty quick. Do not get into a turning fight with a zero. It's got to be boom and zoom. You've got to keep your energy up and dive on them and pull out and, you know, come back around and you cannot get into a turning fight with a zero. Yeah. Best way to stay alive. So we're going to change things up a little bit for the last half. Sure. Let's do a, you ever do one of these internet quizzes? Sometimes you see them on Facebook and whatnot. You and I are going to play this one at the same time because uh, it's one of those slideshows. It's called How Smart Are You When It Comes to World War II? Brought hmm. to, so uh, we're going to play now. Between the two of us, we better get an A on this. Uh, okay. Let's see. While most uh, while most looked at Germany invasion of Poland as the start of the war, I'm sorry, as the start of World War II in 1939, Japan had already been at war with China since what year? Let's see. Here. Well, you could either, I mean, there were incidents going back to 1931. Okay, we're going to do the multiple choice A, 1935, B, 1937, C, 1936, or D, 1934. 1937. So, is that your final answer? We do have three mm-hmm. lifelines. <laughs> I'll go with that. I mean, am I? 1937, and let's see here. There's little doubt that Japan wished to conquer Asia and the Pacific and the Marco Polo Bridge incident did occur in July of 1937. So you, sir, are correct. The reparations placed on Germany in 1918 are likely to be the biggest cause of World War II. What was responsible for these reparations? A, the Treaty of Versailles. B, the Treaty... I'm sorry. A, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Litovsk. Thank you. He's not even reading it. He knows better. B, the Treaty of Versailles. C, Paris Peace Accords. Or D, the Geneva Convention. I'm sorry, the Geneva Accord. Do we, you want me to answer? Or it's you... B. It's Treaty of Versailles. We all know that, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I thought. So. <clears throat> yep. Uh, while Germany did invade France, the signing of the Francisco-Russian Treaty tripled the Germans' hands a bit, but the victor goes to spoils. Let's see here. In what year was Hitler elected Chancellor of Germany, paving the way for him to pass legislation to cement his authoritative rule? Was it 33? Well, A was 1933, B, 1931, 35, and 36. We're going to go with A. Continue. What battle was responsible for the largest loss of American soldiers' lives? A, Battle of the Bulge. B, Battle of the Atlantic. C, D-Day Invasion, or B, the Battle of Midway? I almost want to battle say... Battle of the Atlantic? Hey, what now? I was going to say Battle of the Bulge. You want to go to Battle of Atlantic? <clears throat> well, I mean, if you go Atlantic, you've got all the merchant seamen who were sunk by the wolf pack. Okay, I hit hint. The last-ditch yeah, effort did a lot to end the war altogether. That makes me want to say Battle of the Bulge because that was Hitler's last-ditch effort through the Rhine, correct? 
I'm sorry. The hint was this last ditch effort did a lot to end the war altogether. So I'm saying about the bulge. Yep, I'll go. Yeah, I agree with you. Let's see here. The Battle of the Bulge was the last major German offensive of the war, launched through the Ardennes Forest region, France, and Luxembourg. So that was correct. We'll do a few more of these. Yeah, these are fun. Uh, this one's worth 10 points. The Nazi Sieg Heil March was a pirated version of which university's fight song? Um Yale, Princeton, Harvard, or Columbia. This is something I've never heard before. Once again, the Nazi Sieg Heil March was a pirated version of which university's fight song? Chief, man, that's some roll tight stuff right there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Don. I have no idea on oh, this one. Wow. I don't know. Do you want to go with, we'll go with a hint. This university... This is the university that Barack Obama, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Natalie Portman all attended. That tells me absolutely nothing, but we're going to say Princeton, maybe? Is it what, what are the choices? Princeton, Yale, Harvard, or Columbia? I thought, didn't Obama go to Columbia? I don't know. We'll go to Columbia. You know better than me. Uh, no, I don't. Incorrect. Not, not. The composer <laughs> of the Nazi march was familiar with the fight song having attended Harvard. That's not something you hear Harvard bragging too much about. I, I did not know that. Hey, doesn't something many any of these questions do with the Pacific much? It seems I, like most of them are ETA. Uh, this is just some generic honey uh, hey wise okay. website. This isn't a history website. Um here well, this is Pacific kind of worth ten points, Mr. Henry Sledge. What was the name of the plane that dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki? Boxcar. That would be C, boxcar. The other options would be Full House, Fat Man, or Nola Gay. We know it wasn't the Nola Gay. Boxcar is correct. Your next three questions, Henry, will earn you double points. <laughs> it's estimated that the percentage of Soviet men born in 1923 died in World War II. It's estimated that what percentage of Soviet men born in 1923 died in World War II? Is it 80%? 70%, 30%, or 50%. Now, let's keep in mind, for those of you playing the home game, that um, as the movie Enemy at the Gates reminded us that the poor infantrymen on the Russian side <laughs> did not have enough weapons, so one man was given gun and some ammo. The guy behind him was given ammo, and if the guy in front of you got shot, your job was to simply use his rifle. <laughs> so keep that in mind. I, I got to say, I'm not sure, okay? I, mean, I would just complete. I would totally be guessing. Well, let's get 80, 70, 30, or 50. I want to say it's got to be over 50, right? I'm, I was going to go 70. Yeah, I was thinking 70 as well. We're going to go B, 70. That is our final answer, and we are incorrect. While four out of five German soldiers died on the Eastern Front, it clearly came at a price of the Soviets. The correct answer was a staggering 80%. Oh. That is a lot that's, I'm sure. I wonder how many wonder what percentage of them died in, in Stalingrad alone. Oh man, Stalingrad. Yeah, no joke. Okay, this one is worth 20 points if you get this right. Five children. Oh, I know this one. I'm going to step away because I've actually produced a bit on this. And if you need help, I'll be your lifeline. But I have to step down because I know the answer. Five children and a pregnant woman were killed by a Japanese barrage balloon. While on a picnic in which state in the United States? Now, I'll give you a little hint. 
even though you didn't ask for her. Her name was Elsie Mitchell, and her and these five children were the only civilians to lose their lives in the entire conflict of World War II on the United States soil. So obviously Hawaii didn't count because it was a colony. I right. mean, it was not a colony, but it was a territory. But are there choices? Or am yes, I just... their choices are Michigan, Oregon, Washington, or California. Oregon. Ding, ding, ding. That would be Blythe, Oregon, to be exact. But yes, Elsie Mitchell. The Japanese launched no fewer than 9,000 of these uh, bombs, or what they called windships. Now, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, the story of Elsie Mitchell and her five students from the church group, see, what actually happened was they were going on a picnic, and her husband's car broke down, mm-hmm. and he got out to talk to a working crew to get some help, and so pregnant Elsie and the five students all piled into what I would probably guess would be a 1938 sedan. <laughs> <laughs> they all went walking out into the woods when one of the children said, look what I found, and it was a undetonated barrage balloon. Children being children went and poked around, and the thing blew up. The story of this never came out until after the war because the United States government so smartly, and this may sound bad, but it's the truth, they didn't want the local news to report the story because they didn't want the story to get back to Japan where Japan would say, holy hell, these things are working. Let's triple down on production. So to prevent... um, because this one blew up, I knew a one or two of them landed near um, power plants. And an interesting side note, the 555th Triple Nichols Buffalo Battalion, the first all-African-American trained and led airborne division, mm-hmm. never got sent over to Europe to fight. Instead, they were sent to the West Coast to fight forest fires and preparation for more of these barrage balloons and a lot of the procedures that modern day smoke jumpers use were founded by the triple nickels who were sent out west to fight forest fires from potential barrage balloon uh, damage we'll go on to the next step we'll do a few more here of these unless we're getting bored with them uh, British engineer Robert Watson Watts was working on a death ray in 1935, and this university became, I'm sorry, and this ultimately became the invention of what? Because I can't read, I'll read that again. British engineer Robert Watson Watts was working on a death ray in 1935, and this ultimately became the inventor of what? Is it sonar, laser, radar, or EMP? I think Radar. I was going to say, this one's pretty much self-explanatory. We're going to go with B. No. Wow. That just goes to show. Bad, complacent. I thought I knew. Well, not only that, but scientists, all of our sci-fi movies from the 70s and 80s and 60s, lasers, right? Let's look at the, the guns on Star Wars. They look like laser guns. Mm-hmm. Radar. Radar actually came. Uh, specifically, Watson Watts was using radio waves and radar as an acronym for the radio detection and ranging. So he was actually working with radar trying to make a death ray. He missed the boat on that one. So what was the answer to the question, though? 
radar, not laser. Well, I, I said radar. Oh, I thought you said laser. No, I so, said radar. Oh, no, so then you got that one. Or I thought I did. What we'll pull the tape? <laughs> There's a bunch more of these. We're not. We're just going to do this one's the last one. The final solution was proposed in 1942 by whom? Considered to be the prime. Okay, we're going to go to the next one. This one's way too easy. Uh, considered to be the prime architect for the idea was it uh, Rudolf Hess, Heimlich Himmler, Conrad Haydn, or uh, Dr. Josef Mengele? Um, so I'm sorry, read the, the final solution. The final solution was proposed in 1942 by whom considered to be the prime architect architect of the idea. Was it Hess, Himmler, Mangala, or Haydn? They were all such high achieving Nazis. Was it Himmler? I was going to narrow it down between Himmler and Mangala. Let's go with the lifeline just because we haven't used any of them. Okay, sure. Mangala was the doctor who... Pull the audience 50-50 chance or skip the question. I don't know how you pull the audience. We'll go 50-50 chance. Is that your final answer? And I don't know who it's asking, so that was a waste of time. Let's go with Hint. Um, like the others, this German committed suicide after being captured despite going behind Hitler's back to make peace. Would that be Himmler? I, I think that was Himmler. Let's go be Himmler. That is a correct. And let's just do one more for fun. Oh, here we go. The Japanese surrendered in 1945 aboard which United States battleship worth 10 points? Big Mo, Missouri. That would be C, the USS Missouri. <coughs> and that is correct. And we're going to stop this. The next one has to do with Anne Frank. Have you seen that movie? My best friend Anne Frank on Netflix. I don't think we talked about that, did we? No, I don't think we have. So your homework assignment. We I I really should have pulled some clips. Um, interestingly enough, this is right around the time my daughter was learning. Well, refusing to learn about Anne Frank in school, <laughs> and not doing her homework. And Carrie and I would just happen to be on Netflix, and there's a great series called My Best Friend Anne Frank, and it's more about her best friend than it is about Anne Frank. Um, let's see if I can find a quick little synopsis here. Um, well, here, let me just play this trailer real quick and we'll, this is another Netflix series. Um, it's really, really good. Hit play on that. Sometimes the most compelling stories. I'm going to wait for the advertisement to go by. But yeah, the, um, saw this on Netflix. It's really, really good. You learn a lot more, you know, about Anne Frank than, than what was all done in the book. Okay, that ain't gonna work. It's all in German. You can't read the subtitles. I thought it was gonna have the English overlay. But basically, you learn about Anne Frank and her uh, best friend, uh, mm -hmm. Hannah Gossler. And you, the story is more told from Hannah's side. Um, in the leading up to Anne's family hiding them out in the annex, there was talk about Anne and her family going off to another country. And Hannah was under the impression she was going to go with her until one day she just vanished. And she had no idea where she went. And obviously they fast forward to both of them being in the uh, camps 
Anne being on the horrible side, uh, whereas um, Anna was on the working party side. But it's a damn good show. Um, they don't, they intentionally don't get too much into the rough and tumble stuff until near the end, which is good because it's a good way for young cats like your son and and my daughter to watch it. But um, if you guys want to see a different side to the Anne Frank story, um, and it's one of these. Where was it's not an American show. That's why it's you know, it's not. It's another one of these great foreign films that, uh, you know, the Germans speak German, the French speak French, the Americans speak American. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. all kind of like we do a lot of our movies where it's all just all, all done in English with an accent. Um, yeah. Let me see. I'll try to get a better. Well, here let's do a Rotten Tomatoes on it. But it's a really good, it's on Netflix. So um, add that to your queue, my best friend Anne Frank. And uh, I really didn't know about her her best friend uh, Hannah, who did survive the war and went on to write a book. Um, let's see here. Uh, okay, we got we got to preface this by saying when it comes to Rotten Tomatoes, the top critics they kind of let their politics get into things, and you know, right now war is not the best thing. Top right. critics give it a fifty-seven percent, but the audience score seventy percent. Mm-hmm. And so, well, you know, Ron, we've talked about Rotten Tomatoes; they didn't like Midway either. Yeah, so um, it's a Bastards. it's a great little little show um, based on a real life relationship between Anne Frank and Hannah Gozer from the Nazi occupied Amsterdam and their harrowing reunion at a concentration camp. Um, came out in February first of twenty twenty two. It is a Dutch language movie, so. It was, it's, it's over, definitely made overseas. And, you know, one thing I like also like about these foreign films is Jeff is one of these who he quickly, you know, he'll admit that he's not a big fan of World War II movies that have like big names. And like when, when we brought up uh, Ethan Hawke being, oh, never mind. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so that's the nice thing about these foreign movies too is as Americans, if there is a quote unquote famous actor in there, we don't recognize them. So we're not bumped by it. So it's easier to relate to them playing the role of a Anne Frank or someone because we don't recognize them as being a, a, you know, a huge famous person, but it's a really damn good show. So, uh, the forgotten war is one you guys need to watch. Um, no, was it the forgotten war? No, it's the, Oh crap. I forget the one about the battle, but anyhow, add to your, um, my best friend Anne Frank, is a good one. And uh, I'm going to go on Amazon and order Tower of Skulls. And I, I had another one I was going to read, but I'm not going to get into it. Let's, I just want to say the fine people over at Scientific America is demanding that the United States go down to um, Bikini Atoll and the um, Marshall Islands and do some nuclear cleanup because <laughs> they're talking mm. about the level of nuclear radiation down there and how, which they did bring up. There is one little thing you never really thought about um i'm sorry the marshall islands one thing they did point out um where is it a conclusion work is clear they're talking about um sea level rising that they're concerned that uh, as the sea level rises apparently we built like a concrete dome over the uh like a sarcophagus yeah over the nuclear fallout and it has cracks in it and they're talking about how it's already leaking and that if the uh, water level gets too high, um, it could definitely be problematic for everybody. I was trying to find out because it's one of these pages that have these huge photos in between the topics. To better understand, blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, but uh, it was on Scientific America. It was a whole write-up basically talking about how horrible we are for <laughs> evacuating the people and using those areas to test out nuclear bombs. <laughs> but then they do bring on a good point about the concrete dome and how it has cracks. Oh, here we go. But to, uh, the but the nuclear story in the Marshall Islands is not just one of a bygone actions. The United States doesn't if the United States doesn't better manage the solution, we could have another radioactive incident on our hand. The structural integrity of the Runet Dome, a concrete shell covering over a hundred thousand cubic yards of nuclear waste on the island of the Inanwakatoll, is at risk of be- is at risk because of rising sea levels. Leakage from the dome, which is already occurring, is likely to increase, and higher tides threaten to break the structure open in coming decades. So, mm. so if there is any truthful concern about that, we at least once again may want to get a bucket of flex silk get down there and patch those cracks up. Yeah, really. But um, so, what do you got coming down the pike? I know Jeff told us that he is going to be uh, featured on um, Sarah the History Chick's Instagram channel on one of her live streams. I'm not sure when the date's coming up on that, but we wanted to put that out there. Um, I don't have anything coming up once again as i said last week my living history season got cut short because of my blowout in my boots but um you got anything coming down the pike you want to get out there yeah the only thing i'm going to put out there this time is a week from tomorrow i was invited to be on a show it was it's the vbc veterans breakfast club um and i was they did a show talking about my dad and Peleliu back in November for Veterans Day. And they just got an email a few days ago inviting me to come on. They're doing a show in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. They're going to have two surviving Marine veterans who fought there. Wow. And the 6th Marine Division historian. And so the gentleman who's putting this together said, hey, we'd love to have you come on and, and give some context on the EB Sledge story. Um, you know, so I heartily agreed to, to do that. So that'll be a week from tomorrow. Um, and the cool thing is, Don, I mean, if those guys are amenable to it, I, I may try to line them up to come on our show. Not only the vets, but also the historian. Yeah, absolutely. Six Marine yeah. division. That'd be, that'd be cool, man. That'd be a good absolutely. contact for, uh, you know, for, for all of us, but for me with my book project and all that. So, uh, yeah, well, that should be a cool thing. So, so keep your ears out for that. And if you guys like what you hear at the WTSP, the what's the scope of podcast, and you want to support us any way you can, uh, there's a multiple ways of doing so. First and foremost is you can head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on that Patreon link and sign up. It's a dollar a month, $3.50 a month, or seven fifty a month. Um, Henry, me and you, uh, we need to get together one time and do an uh, after hours, what we call the OG5 podcast. That is the podcast that we put up on behind the paywall on Patreon as a little thank you to the people who subscribe. And mm-hmm. it don't even have to be World War II. We can just, once again, talk about your kids mountain biking. It's just... It's just yeah. added value that we put up there. Also, if you're a member of the OG5, as we call it, um, whenever we come up with stickers or promotional items, usually when we order demos to test out, we will contact you guys on Patreon and get your address and just send you guys free stickers and stuff. And um, and um, we're going to definitely, definitely start putting more time towards focusing on you guys who support the show that way. Um, 
Or if you don't want to sign up for Patreon and you want to get yourself a sweet WTSP World War II t-shirt, more new ones will be coming out here soon now that I have more time on my hands. Once again, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the merch link and you can buy uh, t-shirts there. we got some nice ones up there. And as Henry can attest, because he's a latecomer to the party, these aren't your radio station giveaway t-shirts that shrink in the washing machine um, no, you, these are good t-shirts there are three different options and when you order the premiums they do not shrink they have the athletic fit and they are a little long so um you know if you're like me a tall guy like me um you can order that extra large without fear of your butt crack show when you bend over because they are a little longer and they are quality t-shirts so um they're definitely worth the price. They're comfortable, and uh, they hold up to, I think out of all the shirts we've sold, we only had one that had a, a factory mishap, which we Jeff um, got with me, and we happily replaced it to the person who had the mishap. But um, other than that, and uh, hopefully now that i got this new gig here in a few months, maybe we'll um, come up with some more promotional stuff and just things all, all around will continue to grow. But I want to thank everybody. Our numbers have grown substantially in the last six to eight months and uh, we, Fantastic. Couldn't, we couldn't do that without you guys and uh, jeff and henry and all the guests who have been willing to come on but um for a podcast that does no form of advertising you know i used to kick facebook five dollars here and there which never produced anything um all of our all of our um all of our advertising is word of mouth so the fact that you guys are spreading the word and uh sharing us with like-minded people and the numbers are growing is a testament to you guys the audience and uh, we want to thank you for that. And who knows, maybe uh, maybe in the future, me, Jeff, and Henry can get together at a century-located area. Maybe we can kind of put it together in enough time that maybe we can try to organize some sort of meet-and-greet type thing. That, that would be cool. So the audience can come out. Maybe we'll uh, try to get a museum involved or something, organize something. One of those deals we have to give like good eight, nine months advance. That way people have time mm -hmm. to plan. But uh, maybe that'll be... Maybe that'll be something we'll work on in 2023. That would be we'll cool. We'll try to set up something and do a weekend somewhere. Something to have lots of time for advertisement. I, I think having it tied in with a museum of some sort. Yeah, like give, give people a destination. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Give people a destination I mean, I know to people go to. There, so. Yeah, and I do too. I, um, I had the privilege of working with uh, their gun crew that they sent down to Fort Morgan for the Peleliu uh, and the Tarawa events, both. Okay. So, yeah, maybe we'll have to reach out. I'm sure we all three know people there. Yeah. I mean, you know, we between the three of us, we've got contacts. And as always, if you haven't done so, please head over to YouTube.com, click on the Digital 410 or find Digital 410. One, you can watch all of our live streams, and two, um, you can help us get the view counts up on our videos, and um, you can support the channel that way because YouTube's already running advertisements on our videos. We just don't get our beaks wet from that, so... We hit the subscriber mark. We just got to get the view hours in. And then once YouTube is happy with that, they'll finally break us off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. And so uh, that's a piece of chocolate we wouldn't mind having. But I want to thank everybody for hanging out with us for another episode on the behalf of Henry Sledge and the absent Jeff Copsetta, who will be back next week. Uh, thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you all next week. And we have a guest coming up. And uh, so... As we said, we had guests booked up until May. Our guest tonight had an emergency come up and wasn't able to come on. But that's right. We will see you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>